Welcome to This Is My Story, where everyday women share their stories of struggles and setbacks that have shaped their lives. I'm your host, Melissa Touch. In today's episode, I speak with my high school best friend, Amanda Barham, whose journey growing up in the shadows of her father's schizophrenia has shaped her into the resilient person she is today. From battling severe anxiety to questioning her own salvation for 24 years, Amanda found solace and strength in the transformative power of therapy. In this episode, we delve into the depths of Amanda's experiences, exploring her own stigma and struggles with her mental health, how therapy became a vessel for God's healing grace in her life, and how she came to a place of peace and understanding about her salvation. Before we dive into today's episode, don't forget to follow us on our social media and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find all our social media links as well as more information about us at thisismystorypodcast.com. My name is Amanda, and this is my story. Tell me about your dad. So my dad was Mr. Mom. When I was born, my parents wanted somebody to stay at home to take care of us. And so just financially, it made more sense for my dad to stay home. And so all throughout my childhood, um, high school years, my dad was Mr. Mom. And um, just kind of just sweet memories, I guess, that I have of him during that time. He uh, learned to French braid my hair um, for dance, uh, went to the beauty shop, had him teach him how to do it so he could do that. He did the best ponytails ever. I remember just like I would lay off the side of the bed and I would have my head hanging off and I didn't want any bumps and I wanted it super tight. And he was like the best at it. Probably one of my favorite memories is I was probably about five and I was going to have a birthday and I wanted a bear-shaped cake. I don't know if there was no bear-shaped cake pans. I don't know. Anyway, we didn't go buy a bear-shaped cake pan. So he um, made one out of cardboard and, um, you know, made it all, did it, covered it in foil and baked me a cake. And so that was just kind of the dad that he was just kind of, you know, going above and beyond doing things that just special, you know. So your dad was diagnosed with schizophrenia when you were in high school. And I remember this for Mm -hmm. those that don't know, um, we were like tied at the hip in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, So everything that you're talking about up until more recent events, you know, I was right there for all of it are on the other phone listening about it. But he was diagnosed. uh, I remember you came to stay with me. I can't remember exactly what his episode was about. Maybe you do. But I remember you coming to stay with me for a few days, and then you were going to stay with somebody else while your dad was in the hospital during that time. Before we get into that, prior to that, did you realize that something wasn't quite right with your dad? How would he, you know, aside from those sweet memories, how would he act? Or was there ever any time as you got older that you were like, okay, something's not quite right here? I think probably around fourth grade, I was like, my family is just a little different. Uh, Our house was always messy. You could have literally put us on an episode of Hoarders. And so because of that, like I never had friends come over and play. I never had friends spend the night. My dad was the type of person he could do anything. He could build anything. He could make anything super smart. Um, but he would start these projects and just never finish. So, I mean, he may start remodeling a bathroom and then 10 years later, it's still not remodeled. Just, that was just normal. I remember like he would get angry punching holes in the wall 
was normal at my house, yelling, screaming, all that just, you know, it's just, I, I, it was just done. That's what he did. Just kind of some instances that kind of stuck out kind of extreme in high school, I remember, and I don't know what I did to set him off, but he got mad and just put all my clothes in the middle of my floor and poured dirty dishwater on them. Or there was another time he would get mad and I don't, you know, I don't remember what set him off and he would take the spark plugs out of my car so I couldn't leave. And so it was just very, just all over the place. You just never knew what you were going to get with him. And so, yeah, it was just total chaos all the time. How did your family cope with the challenges of your father's condition? Were you accepting of it? Like you were, or was everybody in denial? Like, this is not a problem we need to address. He doesn't need to go to the doctor. Or were you like, he's off his medicine and we need to get this fixed or anything like that? No, he had medicine, but he would like sometimes take it, sometimes not take it. And I think everybody, it just, I mean, I really just, it's crazy, but I just thought, it's just how it is. Um, I think we just kind of walked on eggshells all the time and just did whatever we could do to keep him happy. The hard part with that was the bar was always moving. And so, you know, one day I may do this and I get this result. And then the next time I do the same thing and I get a different result. And so you just never knew what you were going to get with him. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. Like I say, I don't know that we were in denial, but it just, I just thought we thought, I guess I thought it was normal. I don't know. I don't remember what about my mom really. Were you embarrassed or did you try to hide his condition? So was I embarrassed? Oh my goodness. Yes. I think I tried to make it look like I had all the things. And so if I looked like I had it together on the outside, then I was quote unquote normal. When in reality, I did not have it all together. You know, I'm sure you remember, but, you know, we grew up in a small town. Everybody knows everybody. My house was on a major highway. So you're driving by my house all the time. And my dad um, would go through stages of collecting things. So it may be like tools. Like I remember we would go to pawn shops and he would just buy all these power tools. We don't need 15 drills, but we would have 15 drills. And so you probably remember um, he kind of went through a stage of collecting lumber. And so um, like when I tell you we could have been a lumber yard, he had shops full of lumber and then our garage was full of lumber. So you couldn't even park your car in there. And um, I mean, it was so embarrassing because literally, I mean, everybody knew that my house was the house you know, with lumber in it. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I super embarrassed, just tried to, like I say, make it look like I had it all together. So people would think I was, you know, quote unquote normal. I know that this was back when you were younger, I think maybe fourth grade or so. Can you tell everybody the Home Depot story? We lived about an hour from um, a Home Depot and uh, we would go over there. I think it was like every Tuesday night. I think like my brother had tutoring over there. And so we would leave, I guess, after school and we would go over there. He would go to tutoring and then we would go to Home Depot and we would spend hours at Home Depot. 
it had to be a Thursday night, actually, because you always took, you know, the practice spelling test. And so the guy at Home Depot would give me my practice spelling test and he would also sign it for me because we were at Home Depot every Thursday night while my dad literally went through every two by four to get the perfect one. So, yeah, that was um, one of my childhood memories. Yeah, I, that's the one I remember all all the time because I know yeah, you told it, it often. Yeah, very entertaining. I've got lots of fun stories. <laughs> <lots of fun. laughs> Not to make light of it, but it's just one that's always stuck out to me. Oh yeah, that man, what an angel in Home Depot I for know. doing that. Was it the same guy every Thursday? Yeah, night? it was the same guy every time. And every yeah, and I mean, like I said, I don't know how long. I mean, it had. I mean, it was several months, and so yeah, who knows some random guy. As you got into high school, got older, how did your relationship with your father develop? I know it sounded like a very sweet relationship when you were younger, but as you got older, how was it? I mean, I really would say that I was daddy's little girl. You know, he had a lot of issues. He did a lot of things wrong, but he did a lot of things right too. And he was the parent that I guess was present day in and day out. And just, I think naturally my relationship was, with him was stronger. It's hard for me to like share these bad things about him because it, I, you know, it makes him look bad. But the reality is, it's, it's the truth. And, you know, it had an effect on me. Um, and it's one of those things, as bad as I don't want to share it, I'm sure there's others listening that have similar stories. And so I share it because I want them to know that they're not alone. You know, I think my dad obviously was sick. I think he did the best he could with the resources that were available at the time. I know schizophrenic episodes can look different in everyone. You've already described a few episodes from when you were in high school. Um, What were some other episodes that your father had? So like you said, I've already shared um, a few things that, you know, he did. Um, One of the biggest episodes that happened and ultimately led to my parents' divorce was when I was in college, I was a sophomore and was getting ready to leave to go on a cruise for a week. And so, you know, we're at port. I call home, mom answers the phone. I call home to tell him, you know, I love you. I'll talk to you when I get back. She's crying. Dad's screaming and yelling in the background, which was just normal. So, I mean, it's like, okay, they're fighting again. You know, it is what it is kind of thing. Didn't really think much about it. So go on my cruise, fast forward, I'm on my way home. I call mom just to say, hey, I'm back, I'm safe, all that kind of thing. And I find out that my dad is in Brentwood, which is a psychiatric hospital. And this was actually his second visit. He had gone, um, and I don't even remember, you just, you know, you said me come in to stay with you. I don't even remember coming to stay with you um, for those days. But he had gone when I was in high school for several weeks. Um because um, of an episode. Um, And so, like I say, this was his second time there. And I found out that um, he had basically, him and my mom had gotten in a fight that night that I left. I don't know what, you know, set him off. And um, he ended up trying to um, smother her with a plastic bag. I really didn't even find out all these details until probably two or three months ago, I found out that she said, she happened to have her keys in her pocket. She's like, I I don't know why. She's like, I didn't have any shoes on. And she ended up getting away 
and getting in her car and she was a nurse. And so she went to the hospital where she worked and she was just going up there just to kind of like lay low for the night and hide out. Um, And then she would have come home in the morning, but her coworkers saw her come in and they were like, no, this is not okay. And they are the ones that ultimately ended up calling the police. And that's, you know, what got that ball rolling with them going and getting him and taking him to Brentwood. She had some broken ribs from that incident, um, you know, and so because of that, I think that's when she was like, hey, I can't, like, I can't do this anymore. I can't stay in this relationship. And so that's kind of what started the process of their divorce. And it was, you know, a long, drawn out, messy divorce that happened. I was a sophomore in college, and I don't even think their divorce was settled till after Ella Grace was born. So that's my oldest child. And she was born in 06. I mean, so their divorce, it was eight or so years um, because it was even after she was born before all that was settled. Wow. I didn't realize that. It was was a whole mess, a whole mess. You know, you know, after it settled the dust of the, Uh there was like court or something, wasn't there? Yeah. He actually ended up spending some time in jail because of this incident. I remember he didn't go right away. I remember that it was after I got married. So, I mean, I was, I mean, I didn't get married till I graduated college. So, I mean, it was still a few years and I remember going to jail and like showing him my wedding picture. So, I mean, he was there to walk me down the aisle and, and all of that, but he did, I mean, have to spend, you know, some time in jail because, and he was diabetic and his sugar was out of control that, I mean, it was sky high that night, but, you know, ultimately you're still responsible for your actions, you know, and it wasn't just, you know, his sugar. It was, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't take care of himself. He didn't take his meds um, like he should. And so, you know, caused him to make some really bad choices. What were your parents' relationship like when you were younger? Was it still a lot of fighting or did that develop more? I think it I mean, yeah, like I just always remember fighting. Always remember yelling, just lots of chaos. Just, yeah, it was always like that. Everything was um, like yelling, screaming. I don't know. I didn't, I don't remember seeing any physical abuse with him. I now know that there was with my mom. You know, everything was always her fault or somebody else's fault. It was never his fault. Um, So it could be her fault. It could be my fault. It could be my brother's fault, you know, and it would, like I say, just silly stuff. Your mom worked two full-time jobs, or I guess, I don't know if that was your entire life, but as long as I knew she worked two full-time jobs, do you feel like that was her way of escaping? And was that why they were married so long? Because she wasn't around as much. Probably some of it. So yeah, she worked two jobs. She was a nurse. And so she worked in my hometown. And then she actually worked um, in a town, probably about 30 minutes from us and worked mostly nights. And so, you know, she would work all night. And so she would sleep during the day. Like I say, I found this out recently that he would, a lot of times she would come home, I guess, we would, she would probably, she would get us to school, you know, after working all night, she she would try to go to sleep and he would pick fights with her. And so a lot of times 
she could be up the whole day. And so she's worked graveyard. She's up all day and then she gets ready and she goes back and she does it again. I mean, I truly have no idea like how she physically did it, you know? And I think I thought she was always kind of, I looked at her always kind of like being weak for staying with him, which now in reality, I'm like, oh my gosh, you were so strong. Like I would have been gone. Like, no way. Just some of the stories that she shared of how he treated her, like while we were at school, you know, absolutely not okay. Would not have been there. And I asked her, you know, I was like, why did you stay? And um, she said, you know, I really wanted y'all to have a normal, you know, whatever that is, childhood, which it was so far from normal. And she said, I didn't think that I could take care of y'all by yourself. About, you know, just me and you. She said, I knew, and, and your brother, she said, I knew I'd have to have daycare and all that. And she's like, I just didn't think I could do it by myself, which in reality, she could have done it. Um, I mean, she was the financial, you know, breadwinner for our family. Um, my dad, like I say, he never worked even after I graduated high school. I mean, he never worked my whole entire life. And so, I mean, she could have done it, but she just said that she stayed because she didn't, she didn't think she could. Um, and I do think, you know, work was an escape. She said, you know, she said I was really good at my job. She said I would get to work and she would zone in and she would get her job done. And she was, she was a very good nurse. And so, like I say, I don't know how she did it, um, you know, just functioning just just purely on lack of sleep, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and not even adding all the other extra junk. Um, I have no idea. So, I mean, I now, like in adulthood, I've actually apologized to her and been like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry because I was a total brat um, in high school and just like, I'm sorry for treating you like that. Like you are like so strong and it's tr- truly amazing. And, and And she protected me from that. And I didn't need to know all that then. And so just even that aspect of her just protecting me from all that, you know, that she made sure I didn't know like all that was going on. And so just even that just showed, I think, her strength. As a young adult, you started struggling with depression and severe anxiety and panic attacks. I don't recall you having those issues, maybe some OCD stuff in high school. Was there something that brought that on? I mean, obviously your childhood, like it all was a building building up, but what was there something specific that happened that really just kind of opened the floodgates on those feelings? Yeah. So first of all, I don't know why you would ever think I was OCD. No, (laughs) I've gotten way better. Yeah. There's a joke at my house that I want my fridge handles clean. I mean, there would be times really that I would be late to school, late to work, because I'm like, I'm going to wipe down these fridge handles. And so I'm like wiping them down. And that's like, how do I open the fridge? I'm like, I don't know. Use your shirt. Use a towel. And so, like I say, I've gotten way better, but I do still wipe down my fridge handles and my microwave every night. I do have to ask because when this was probably when Sawyer was a baby, you did laundry every single night. Like you did not want any dirty laundry in the hamper at all. Or do are you still that way? Yeah, we do. Yeah. I mean, I'm still pretty, I mean, yes, I am. I mean, I had one time (laughs) a friend told me she was like, 
your house looks like a magazine. Like, she's like, do people really live here? And I'm like, they do. And I've kind of given some of that to Ella Grace. Um, I have not given that any of that to Sawyer and it's really hard, but I'm like, okay, this is his space. Let his room be his room. There does sometimes come a point where I'm like, I can't do this anymore. You know, like you're going to have to clean this mess up. And so, yeah, no, like I say, I'm a little better, but I still have those tendencies. And I do think it probably stems because we could have been on hoarders as a child. And so, by gosh, you are, I will not be on hoarders now. And so I do think it's from that probably. So you don't have a school supply stash or all the drinks that you could possibly have. Right. No. uh, Those are the two I remember. It was like you could always get paper and pencils from you. Yeah. There was a store that was going out of business. And in true fashion of my dad, we spent several days there. And I mean, I don't know how old I was. I was probably in junior high when that happened. And like literally I had mechanical pencils till college. And there's probably still some somewhere. Yeah, as a young adult, like you said, depression, anxiety, panic attacks. I don't really know. I try to think like what specifically brought it on. I remember it was the summer after graduating high school is when I had, I guess, my first panic attack. And I didn't even have words for it then. I didn't know what it was. And I guess I really kind of, like I said, I don't know what it was. I don't know what triggered it, um, but I kind of equated it to oh my gosh, I must not love Jesus. I must not have um, Jesus in my heart. I must not be a Christian. You know, I must not be saved. Um, And so I just basically don't love Jesus enough and I need to get that together. Um, And that was kind of like the theme of a lot of it. Um, And I don't, like in college, I didn't really struggle. I don't think much with it. I think I stayed super busy. And so I just didn't give myself time to um, let it, you know, sneak in. It did get worse after I got married. And like I said, I don't know what, even then, what triggered it. You know, that's a big change in life. And so maybe that, and it was at that point that I started taking medicine for anxiety. And so, I mean, I've been married for 19 years. And so I've been on medicine my whole, you know, for 19 years. I've tried to get off at times, but there's definitely a part of, my brain that um, needs those meds to kind of stay where I need to be. So your anxiety, was it just in relation to your salvation or was it, did it come out in like your daily life and in your marriage and in your other relationships or was it more confined to, to just your salvation, that anxiety over, am I saved? Like it was weird. So, I mean, Every time I would get anxious, I would always associate it with my salvation. And like, I guess being on the other side of it, like I know that really wasn't the issue. But uh, then I always thought that was the issue. And so whenever, you know, I guess growing up, my childhood was chaotic. I had no control of my world. And I think, you know, that's where the OCD tendencies and all that stuff come in now. I can control it. I think maybe there were times that these, you know, anxiety and all that would kind of come on when things were out of control. And so 
I would, and I, like I say, I would just automatically go back to, oh my gosh, I just must not be a Christian. I must not, you know, have Jesus. Kind of just daily life during those times. I remember, you know, it would kind of come in waves or seasons. And it's like, it was like when things were good, they were really good. And then when things were bad, they were really bad. It was just kind of like way up or we, you know, way down. If I was kind of down, I remember there were days where like I could barely get out of bed to go to work. You know, it just literally took all I had. Days that Matt had to drive me to work just because like physically it was like I couldn't even, I didn't trust myself to even drive a car because I didn't know, am I going to have a panic attack or what? A lot of times, like I just didn't want to be by myself. And it wasn't that I was scared I was going to hurt myself, but I just didn't want to be alone with my thoughts because they were just so overwhelming and I didn't know what to do with them. And I just wanted somebody there to listen and like, okay, this is what I'm feeling. What's this mean? You know, blah, blah, blah very scared of just dying because it was like, if I die now and I don't have Jesus, then I'm going to go to hell. And so it was just this constant cycle of, you know, just super, super scared of, of death. And like, let me pray again and ask Jesus into my heart, you know, and uh, you know, you don't have to do that. I've asked Jesus into my heart a lot of times. And in reality, I only needed to do it one time. I would say also, and I didn't know then panic attacks, but I tell people, oh, I've had lots of heart attacks. And they're like, oh my gosh, really? And I'm like, no, I really didn't have a heart attack. But it was panic attacks. Um, and I would like have Matt drive me to the hospital because I'm like, I'm dying. And sweet Matt, I mean, he did not know what he was getting into when he married me, but he has been fabulous. You know, and I would have him drive me to the ER, but I didn't want to go in because I didn't want him to think I was crazy because my mom was an ER nurse. And so I heard ER stories. And so I'm like, well, I'm not going in. And I would, you know, so it was just like, like I say, a whole thing. Um, I was really angry. I yelled a lot. Um, like I say, very controlling. I wasn't fun to be around a lot like my dad. And I didn't want to be like that, but it's like, it's all I knew, you know, and I didn't even realize I was being like him, but I was. One of the major things you battled with for 24 years was doubting your salvation. Can you tell me more about that? So yeah, so I grew up in church, was there every time the doors were open kind of thing, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, always there. And I started asking about like uh, Jesus, like what it meant to have a relationship with him when I was in third grade and I remember my dad sitting my brother and I down and saying, you know, this is what you do. Um, kind of that ABCs of a salvation, you admit, um, you believe you confess. And so I prayed the prayer, went to church the next Sunday, walked down the aisle. I knew what to say. Cause I, you know, was there all the time was baptized and just kind of went on with life. And probably around the age of like 15, 16, I started kind of like, hearing like, I don't know that that was really real. And it was kind of like, I knew Jesus in my head, but I didn't know him in my heart. And it was a Sunday night. I remember I was on the back row at church. I probably wrote notes to my friends the whole sermon and did not hear any of the sermon, but the invitation came. And I remember, you know, it's like Jesus is like knocking on my heart. And it was one of those things like, 
I didn't want to move, but I could not move. And so I remember walking down the aisle and talking to my pastor and saying, hey, I know I was down here a long time ago and I thought I asked Jesus into my heart, but I didn't. And I want to do that tonight. And I remember, you know, I prayed and I asked Jesus into my heart. And so, you know, in the church I grew up in, you would sit on the pew at the front and you would fill out your information card and all that. And I immediately remember sitting down and hearing, but did you really ask Jesus into your heart? And like, I didn't know it then, but that was Satan um, putting that thought in my mind. And he started that night, like planting those seeds of doubt in my mind. And I, you know, I think he knew that that was going to be a weakness of mine. He knew that like, I looked at Jesus a lot. Like I looked at my earthly father, you know, I looked at my earthly father, like as long as I was doing the right thing, everything was good. But if I messed up, then it was a different story. I looked at Jesus like that for 24 years. And I mean, Satan knew like if he could just start planting those seeds of doubt, it would take me down. And I was ineffective for the kingdom of God, you know, and it was like I knew intellectually that Jesus didn't work like my dad on earth, but just, I mean, I would just get caught up in it. And I mean, that, you know, my brain and my physical body would just take over and I would just start to question, you know, God. And it was just, those were those cycles of just like severe anxiety and depression and stuff. Um, and I'm thankful that God didn't give up on me. Even when I gave up on him, you know, he never left me. He was always there. One of the verses during that time I just clung to um, is Romans 8, 35 through 39. And it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I love those verses because, I mean, it literally told me like nothing can separate me from Jesus, not life, not death. And so, I mean, my salvation was secure in him when I chose to follow him at 16. And there was nothing that like I could do to change that or lose it. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 tells us for grace, we've been saved through faith, not from ourselves. It's the gift of God. And so, you know, not even in my doubt, I couldn't lose it. You know, um, Matt always, you know, I'd be like, I don't feel saved. And he was like, you know, feelings are real, but um, they're not always accurate. He has to still tell me that sometimes, but it's so true. You know, I may not always feel this way, but the reality is this is what God's word says and it's the truth. And I can stand on that and not get caught up in my feelings. I remember during, this is probably why, around the time that your parents were going through a divorce or the starting of that. And then you just saying you didn't want to be like your dad, like mm-hmm. just being very emotional about it. Like I cannot be like my dad. How did your upbringing have an impact on how you viewed your mental health? I mean, obviously you saw mental health as something that was embarrassing, you know, something that needed to be hidden that you didn't want to talk about with people. So how did 
How did your upbringing have an impact on how you viewed your own mental health? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I did not want to be like my dad. Um, You know, my dad was, quote unquote, you know, crazy. Back then, mental health, you know, people didn't talk about it. It was like, we hit it and, you know, nobody said anything about it. And so I didn't know anybody else that had that struggled, you know, with this. Um, Like all my friends, you know, I mean, like, you know, we were good friends. Like, I didn't see that in your family. I had, you know, another friend from church. I didn't see it in her family. So I like, I truly thought it was just my family. Um, And so, yeah, I, I tried to keep mine a secret and, you know, kind of went back to that. Like, if I can look like I have it all together, then I'm good. And so, yeah, it was something that I didn't talk about. I didn't talk about it at church. I didn't talk about it to my close friends. Like Matt was really the only one that knew. I didn't talk about it with his family. I didn't, I really didn't talk about it with my family just because I just didn't want people to think that, you know, I was, like I say, like my dad, like I really thought like I was, I just thought like I was the only one that struggled with this. Um, I didn't see people around me struggling with these things. And so I really thought like I was the only one that ever had. I I mean, I remember when I got on meds and I was like, literally thought I was the only person in the world that had to take meds for, you know, anxiety. You know, I remember like going to therapy kind of only early on in my marriage and stuff. And I would like, it was at church and I would kind of like want to sneak in because like, I didn't want anybody to see me because I didn't want them to think, oh my gosh, she's going to therapy. What's wrong with her? And so, yeah, just super embarrassed of it. Were there any particular events or moments that were a turning point for you in your anxiety, in your doubt, doubting your salvation? So, yeah, I would say, like I say, I was really hard to live with. And I didn't realize that, like, I had a control issue. And like I say, I now know that that was kind of like a coping mechanism. And it's, you know serve me well at some point in my life, but it wasn't serving me well at this point. So kind of like a huge turning point, we were getting, it was Thanksgiving, I guess of 2020. And we were getting ready to go on a trip with Matt's family. His whole family were going on a trip for the week. And so I'm the type of person that wants my house completely clean when I leave, because I want to come back to a clean house. And So, you know, I'm going to spend all day the day before getting it together. And of course, I don't want you coming behind me and like touching my fridge handles or getting dirt on my floor (laughs) that I've spent all day cleaning. You know, if somebody breaks in, they need a clean house. And so, you know. My concept is that if something happens to us and we all die, the people who come to my house need to enter a clean house and not have negative thoughts about me and my housekeeping and my debt upon my death. Exactly. And so like, I mean, I was just like, not fun the day before. And so I remember like we, it was on a Sunday that we left and we're in the car and we're going and I was just like in the worst mood and just, I mean, awful. And I just remember like I was getting on my own nerves and I'm like, okay, if you're getting on your own nerves, like this is a problem. And I remember getting there to that, to where we were going and we were going out to eat and I was just like, Matt, I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, I I just don't know. And so we 
drop the kids off with his family and just, you know, sitting in the car talking. And I was like, I was miserable. I know everybody around me was miserable and just, you know, he was like, something has got to change. Like you can't, life like this is not working. Um, and kind of, kind of to backtrack a little bit, um, in June of 2020, so that was in November. So in June of 2020, I was listening to a podcast a lot like this one where women share their stories. And there was a girl on there and she shared her story of anxiety and how she had found this doctor that really worked with her on getting her meds where they needed to be. And she said, she made the statement, she said he didn't want anything but the best for her. Like he wasn't going to settle for anything but the best. And I was like, huh. I wished I could find a doctor like that. And it's not that I had bad doctors, but I'd just gone to my primary care physician and that's just not their specialty. And it's one of those things. It's just so hard to find doctors that specialize, you know, and they cite drugs and stuff like that. And so it was just, you know, I didn't want to go through the process of trying to find somebody in my area. And I'm like, Matt, can I just go to her doctor? Which in reality, her doctor lived eight hours from me. And I don't like to drive, especially on the interstate. So, I mean, I'm not going to drive to go see him. And then I also, at that time, didn't fly because obviously I wasn't in control of the plane. And so I didn't fly for 15 years because I was scared to death to fly. And so, I mean, it was one of those things like, how am I going to get to this doctor? But anyway, that night, Matt was like, you're going to have to go see this doctor. And so I made an appointment with him. And that was in November. And... I'm not going to go into all the details, but it was just cool how I ended up even, it was such a God thing, how I ended up finding his name and all that. And so ended up going to see him in January of 2021, flew out there all by myself. And it was, there was a direct flight from a town about 30 minutes from me. So I was able to fly out that morning and fly back that night. And so spent about three and a half hours with him in person that day, just hearing my story and kind of okay, let's start here with these meds. And then really about the next year and a half, just working with him, checking in uh, telehealth and just adjusting and just really getting um, all that under control. Three and a half hours. Yeah. That's unheard of. Like normally you get like what, 10 minutes. If exactly. That's with doctor. Right. And that was the beauty, you know, he um, didn't take insurance. And so that was one of those things I was like, you know, I was like, Matt, we're gonna have to pay for it out of pocket, blah, blah. And he's like, it's fine, like go. But that was the beauty of it that he'd had that time, you know, to spend with me and truly like dig in and just listen. And, and, and it just showed me, you know, he truly cared and he wanted the best for me. And just even that whole year and a half through telehealth, you know, it was like the questions that he would ask and stuff just to, you know, all different parts of my life, you know, how meds were affecting and how we needed to adjust or whatever. He did say um, after that visit that I should try therapy. Um, he had asked me if I'd ever done that. And I was like, you know, I've tried it a few times. I was like, really, I'm good. I was like, you know, my childhood was hard, but I assured him that I was fine and it really hadn't affected me. And he just <laughs> smiled and he was like, okay, have a safe trip home. Um, and so, yeah, um, little did I know I needed some therapy. Yeah. You've said that therapy saved your life. So yeah. how did you get into it and yeah. how, 
you know, how did it save your life? Yes. So um, like I say, he suggested um, that I try therapy and, you know, I told him I was, I was fabulous. I was, I was good. I needed some meds. I didn't need therapy. And that was January of 2021 and, and things were good until they weren't. And so that February at the end of February, 2020 of 2021, I ended up with a UTI. And for some reason that triggered something in me and life was not okay. Like I couldn't pretend that it was okay anymore. I was miserable. And I was at the point, like if this was how life was going to be, I didn't want any part of it. And I wasn't suicidal, but I was just like, Jesus, like, just take me now because I don't want to live. Like, I can't live like this anymore. I truly think I was on the verge of a mental breakdown. And so I reached out. And like I say, I tried therapy before and it just, it was fine, but I didn't really get anywhere with it. And so I had a, at that time I taught kindergarten. Um, I had a child in my class. Her mom didn't practice but she was a therapist and I was like, Hey, do you know anybody can go? And she's like, yeah, there's this new place in town. A lot of the people there are really young, but you know, you could try there. Cause it's just, it's hard to find therapists, you know, as we know, um, especially now after COVID. And so I was like, okay. So I called and um, I remember going in on the first day and um, my girl, Mary Kate, she looks like she's about 12 and so, you know, that t- at that time, I'm like, what, 40-ish? And I'm like, hey, like, I'm here. I don't really think you can help me. I'm going to tell you my stuff. But, you know, you're really not going to be able to help me because you're 12. And she's like, fair <laughs> enough. She's like, um, let me try. And if it doesn't work out, we'll find somebody that can. And thankfully, she was um, a woman of, of God. And that was something that was very important to me. I wanted that spiritual side of it. So I went to therapy, um, every week. Um, I remember like asking her like, so like how many times, like, when do you think I need to come? Like, you know, every other week or whatever. And she's like, probably every week. I was like, okay. So like I'm a once a weeker. She was like, yeah. I was like, so like, how long do you think this is going to take? And she was like, "Mm, probably like a year or so. And I'm like, (laughs) okay. And so um, it did. Um, And kind of the guy that um, she was in over the practice um, that she was with, um, he always says, he's like, you know, especially people that have had a lot of trauma, it's going to take about a year and a half, two years. Um, He's like, but, and that does seem like a really long time. It seems like a really long commitment. It's a commitment financially. It's a commitment time-wise. But really, what's two years? in the grand scheme of life, you know, if you can spend that time and dig in and really work on healing yourself, you know, two years is nothing. And so I went to therapy every week from February, 2021 to June of 2023, when I quote unquote graduated. And like I say, um, you know, it wasn't my fault that all these things happened to me. But at that point, I had a choice to make and I could allow all this stuff that I hadn't dealt with to continue just to control my life. But in reality, it was only hurting me like it wasn't hurting anybody else. Um, It was hurting me and it was hurting the people closest to me, but it wasn't hurting the people that did these things to me. You know, and I've heard like you've got to own your trauma, you know, and so 
I'm a grown up and it's, it's time for me to own my trauma and do the work on healing that. And I'll just be perfectly honest. Therapy was not always fun. I remember one time I texted my therapist and I was like, hey, I was like, I'm not feeling well. Um, so um, I'm, I'm just going to cancel. And she was like, that's fine, but I'm still going to have to charge you. And I was like, OK, I'll be there. <laughs> and it was it was so crazy because it was like I knew that I was going to have to deal with a certain thing at that session. And it's like my body was like, "Uh, uh-uh, we're not doing that. And it was always great after I went. But yeah, it was super hard. I always say, you know, people are like 2020 was the hardest year. And I'm like, I was living my best life. I enjoyed quarantine. Personally, uh, 2021 was the best, worst year of my life. Um, And that's when I really did um, that hard work in therapy. One of the things I think is really important for people with trauma, you need a therapist that is trained I feel like in trauma therapy and my therapist, she uses EMDR. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I was not, but basically, and it's one of those things when she told me about it, I was like, "Mm, this sounds really hokey. Like, I don't know about this. Is Um, that the rapid eye stuff? Yes. So basically you take a memory um, or like, you know, a, a traumatic event or whatever. And you're trying to like, you know, our right side of our brain is, you know, that irrational kind of side and you're trying to move it to that logical side. Um, And so some therapists use clickers in your hands. My therapist used her fingers. And so ultimately we took this memory of in third grade when I was trying to learn my multiplication tables and my dad was so mad because I could not learn them. And I mean, it was one of those things like, I'd only been practicing like a week or so. I mean, I wouldn't know them all. And so we we kind of dug deep down and she's like, ultimately, how did that make you feel? And I was like, it made me feel unworthy. And so she was like, okay, take that word, unworthy. And she was like, watch my fingers. And so she would hold her fingers in front of my face and she would move them left or right. And literally I would just track with my eyes left or right. And then she would stop And she was like, okay, what you got? And you can say whatever you say, whatever comes to your mind. And I'm, you know, over here, this people pleaser. And I'm like, okay, I got to say the right answer. Like, (laughs) I don't know. You know, she's like, whatever comes to your mind is what you say. And I'm like, okay, but I don't want to get the wrong answer. You know, I'm like worried about her because I'm still (laughs) feeling with all the crap that I want to, you know, make everybody happy. I remember one time I like just saw like snowman and I'm like, snowman I was like but that's really weird and I don't know why I saw that and I think it was we had done an art project at school that day and we had made an ornament with their fingers and they were snowmen but ultimately I was like okay well Jesus washes as white as snow and it really did anyway end up working into it and it's just crazy how it worked and that was August of 2021 and I will say it was not till after doing that EMDR with her that I truly felt worthy and felt worthy, like just in friendships, in my relationship with Matt, in my relationship with Jesus. And I mean, after I always thought there was something I could do that would make Matt leave me. I always thought people just were nice to me because they had to be, you know, and after working through that, I was like, oh my gosh, like I am worthy. And I mean, it just changed 
like I say, after from that point on, like I have not doubted my salvation. I truly thought I would doubt my salvation all my life. I just thought that's just my cross to carry. I'll just doubt it. It is what it is kind of thing, you know, and it just, it, it, it helped me see Jesus the way Jesus is and not like my earthly father. And he does call me worthy. He does call me loved. And so all that to say, I personally, I think everybody needs to go to therapy. I love it. And like I say, I, I would go every week still if I could afford it. But anyway, I graduated, quote unquote. They kicked you out? <laughs> I mean, she said I didn't have to come unless I wanted to. And we can get to it later. I did actually end up going back. But yeah. How do you manage your anxiety and doubts now? You said you don't have those doubts now. So it sounds like that therapy helped Yes. Yeah, so I do not doubt my salvation at all now. Now, does that mean that those that like you're not worthy never comes back into my mind? No, like it will creep in, you know, I'll be like, you know, something will happen and I'll be like, you're not worthy. And then I'm like, Mm-mm, that's not true. Like, I'm going to go back to what I know to be true. And that's not true. And so I'm able to take those thoughts captive you know, I'm able to get to that logical side of my brain and and tell myself that that's, that's not true. And I actually believe what I'm saying. I'm also, I think when I start to get anxious about things, I immediately go to somebody and I tell them, I tell Matt, um, whereas in the past, I would try to deal with it on my own for a while, or I would try to hide it from others. And so, like I say, immediately, I tell Matt, I have a super close friend that I will tell her whatever, you know, I'm like, this sounds crazy. This is what I'm dealing with. And so she can like speak truth in my life. She can point me back to Jesus. I know that they're not going to judge me for whatever I say, you know, and they're going to just walk with me through that. So I think that's huge is you've got to, you can't hold it in because you're still going to have those thoughts. You're still going to have those struggles. It's not like they're going to go away, but you've got to, um, to share it. You know, I think that Satan wants us to um, keep things to ourselves. He wants us to keep things in the dark. And um, he didn't want, like, he didn't want me sharing all this with you. He didn't want me to share how God's redeemed my life. He wants me to just live in that shame of my past. He wants me to live in that doubt of my salvation, you know, because it's not comfortable necessarily to come on and share all this. Um, with the world. And I've actually shared this before um, with a group of ladies and it was scary, but like truly walking off that stage, it was just like, okay, like I'm free. I just felt so free because it was like, everything was out. I'm like, okay, what you got now, Satan? Like there's nothing. I've just told it all. And so I think when we do that, he loses his power. One of my verses that I love about this. It's Revelation 12, 11, And it says, they overcame him, meaning Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And I just love it because, I mean, it says, you know, Satan was overcome by the blood of Jesus, but also by the word of our testimony. And I think you've referenced this before, maybe in an opening or something. And it's like, you know, one day you'll tell your story and it'll become part of someone else's survival guide. And like I say, I think sometimes like we're so embarrassed of our stories, but people need to hear them so they know that they're not alone. Um, 
you know, last time or the time that I shared this with a group of ladies, a lady immediately came up to me after and she's like, oh my gosh, that was my life. Like that was my childhood. And I mean, I was just able to like sit with her and minister to her and say, hey, this is what I've done, you know, to help heal these things. I never would have been able to do that, you know, if I wouldn't have been honest and shared. Sometimes you have to go back to therapy. I recently had a job change. So I taught kindergarten for 16 years and um, ended up moving from one school to another school. And I do feel like God called me to that other school, but that other school was a lot different from the one I was at previously. And it was a mess. I was there for nine weeks and I'm not really a quitter. So it was very hard to walk away after nine weeks, especially when I thought God called me there. But it had gotten to the point where I had started having panic attacks. Um, I couldn't sleep at night. I remember I would wake up and just, you know, full body sweats, like wake Matt up and just, I mean, I was a mess. I remember just um, having thoughts of just very dark thoughts of what do what can I do to not have to go to work? And, you know, it was hard to have those thoughts. Um, I remember um, walking in to Matt's closet one day. And this is like so hard to share because even now I'm like, I don't want people to think I'm crazy. And I saw like his hunting gun there and I was like, well, if I shoot myself, I don't have to go to work tomorrow, you know, and I didn't want to kill myself, but I wanted just to get out of that situation so bad. But I knew that if I would have stayed in that and not told somebody, it could have gotten to that. Um, And so that's where I think, you know, you've got to like reach out and be like, hey, this is really dark and this is really whatever, but I need some help. And so I think that's just kind of how you have to to deal with it. And like I say, from that, I went back to therapy um, and kind of working through some of that. And thankfully, God has brought me out of that situation and I'm no longer in that job. Um, And he's just, like I say, been so good. And he's placed me in a position that I never would have ever saw myself in. But it's a place where I'm able to to truly do ministry and really use my, you know, story to help hopefully others um, and show them that life doesn't, life can be hard, but it doesn't have to stay that way. It can change um, if you put in the work. So what other advice would you offer to those who may be struggling with similar feelings of doubting their salvation or might have anxiety or they're in a family situation similar to yours as your, yours was as a child. Yeah. Um, I guess like, like I say, my biggest, like for so long was doubting my salvation. And I guess, I mean, talk speaking to that, I would say, you know, um, God is not the author of confusion. Find somebody to talk to, um, a pastor, a trusted friend, somebody that, you know, that's walking with Jesus and, 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 you know, talk to them and, and share with them and, and just work through that with them because Satan wants you to live in that state of confusion. He wants to take you out. Um, and that's not where God wants you. Um, and, and like even, you know, the doubt, anxiety or family situations, just know like you are not, your family is not the only family like that. 
everybody's family has got issues. Yours may not, you know, be as yours may be more severe. They may not be as somebody else's, but we've all got issues. And just like, you know, I get so frustrated, especially in our churches, because we walk by and we're like, hey, how are you? And it's like, oh, I'm fine. You know, and it's like, no, we're not fine. We're all a hot mess. And if we would just like be honest, um, there's that song, Truth Be Told, and it talks about, you know, our church should look like a hospital and it should. We've got to stop being fake. I mean, it just comes down to like the world is hurting and we you got, we got to stop being fake. You got to start talking about it and reach out to somebody. I mean, you can reach out to me, you know, because life does not have to be the way my life was for so long. It just, that's not what God wants for us. And it doesn't have to be like that. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Yes. I'm glad that you got to do this. It was nice to get to catch up with you and to hear all this. A lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff in the last few years I didn't know about until recently. So yes. Yes. No, thank you for asking me. You're able. I'm glad you're on the other side of it. Me too. Me too. (laughs) Because it is way better on this side of it. But yes, thank you for asking. Thanks for joining us today on This Is My Story. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more inspiring stories, make sure to hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. This has been Amanda's story. What's yours?